I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as... Jesus prays the night before of his crucifixion that his believers would be one and be united, and then the world would know that he, the Father has sent Jesus. And I think maybe wonder sometimes the reason the world doesn't believe that Jesus actually came is because his followers are not so united. Uh, we aren't so together in this thing called uh, Christianity but unity is more than just sitting together and smiling together and tolerating one another until we get out the door. Unity is far deeper than that, and it's uh, uh, intrinsic to who we are as believers. And so we are talking about fan or follower, and you know, many teams have uh, different fans, and they have their uh, uh, jerseys and their colors. Um, and here's a few pictures of some uh, like crazy fans. I know none of you would ever do this, but these are just some people who went all out for their team. You see some of these guys all over the place. It's not just football, it's also tennis. Here's a guy with a big tennis ball on his head. It's also soccer or football in the Europe. Uh, there's a guy. Uh, this image you will not be able to unsee, so sorry about this one. Uh, this poor little guy, uh, the Patriot uniform says it all. That's why he's crying. Uh, this guy, he made the rounds this week. I'm sorry, you will not be able to unsee this guy either, but he's a Philly fanatic, and he was on Twitter this week, and it shows how far he went. Those are actual tattoos. That's not body paint. Uh, he tattooed himself. Why? Because he's a fan. He loves his team. And so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. It's a church that had many problems. They were sex-crazed, and they were sports-crazed, and they are also celebrity-crazed. Philosophers would roam the streets, Greek philosophers and uh, teachers, and they would roam the streets, and they would, they would gather followers, and uh, this person was loyal to one follower, uh, teacher, and this person was loyal to another teacher. And so this is the problem that Paul starts to address in 1 Corinthians. But last week, we looked at the introduction, and really what Paul's doing is he's kind of buttering them up. He says, look, uh, here's who you are. You're enriched in every way. You don't lack anything, uh, that you're blameless, God is faithful, he's going to keep you, all those things. So Paul is, is saying, look, I, I see you and I hear you. But now he starts to get into some of the reasons he wrote 1 Corinthians, that some of the divisions and things that were problems that they had in divisions was one of them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul starts right away, and he says, I appeal, and it, start, it sets the tone for the letter, this transition now that he's making into addressing the problems in the church at Corinth. He will use this term five more times in the epistles, and it's more than a request it's more than just a, a polite asking. He's appealing to them. He's urging them. And so he has this concern for them. And the first thing he says is that I want you to agree with one another. No divisions united in the same thought in mind. And the Greek word for divisions is schism. That's where we get our word schism, or meaning divisions. 
And the first thing that Paul says is this, that I want you to be united in mind and thought. I want you to have this same understanding of this biblical doctrine, that there needs to be this coming together of believing the, the faith as once for all delivered to the saints in Jude. He said, I want you to strive for this understanding of what Scripture is. Listen, every Scripture only has one right meaning. It's what the author intended to write to the recipients and how the recipients understood it. One scripture does not have many different meanings. There is one right meaning. And Paul's saying, I want you to strive to have this understanding of that one right meaning. Why? Because if not, it creates divisions. The very thing that Jesus prayed about, divisions. And the very thing that the world is plagued by today in the Christian faith is divisions. Why did he say this? He said, well, some from Chloe's household had told me this. Chloe was an influential person that the Corinthians would have known. And they're like, oh yeah, we know Chloe. And she had reported back to Paul that there were some problems. You see, Paul got all these uh, information about the Corinthians. He had planted this church a few years ago, and he's now writing from Ephesus to the church in Corinth. And so during those couple of years, he would hear things coming back from Corinth about the problems that they were experiencing. And so the very first thing he addresses is that the Corinthians were expressing loyalty to different leaders. Perhaps it was intentionally on the leader's part, but he doesn't fault Cephas and Apollos. It was the followers who were attaching themselves to the leaders. Now, remember, it was culturally appropriate for teachers to gather followers. That's what they did in Rome in the empire. That's what they did in Corinth. So a teacher could gather followers around him, and it was, it was appropriate. They had patronage where someone would fund a philosopher and, and give that person money, and then they would gather a group around them. And so you had this philosopher with his disciples and this philosopher with this disciples, and they would be opposing each other with different viewpoints and different ideas. And so Paul steps in, and he says, Listen, Corinthians, are you a fan or are you a follower? Are you just looking at this and just, and just having a great time? Or are you going to really step up and follow Jesus? Are you, going to, are you going to be committed to him and not allow culture to dictate what happens within the church? He was directly opposing the cultural practices of the day. There was personal loyalties in the world. And Paul says this is unacceptable in the church of Jesus. We, that cannot be. Because he says at the beginning of the chapter, we are to be what? A separated people. We are to be a different people. United in thought, in mind, he says we are united in our thinking, that our, that our thinking is Christian in orientation, that we have a mindset that opposes factions, that we have a mindset that opposes divisions. So where do we find the unity then? Well, I think Paul tells us what he says is we are united by the gospel message. He goes on and he says, listen, I thank God that, that I didn't baptize any of you except Gaius and Crispus. You can kind of see him going through his mind about people he wanted to remember. Paul was not minimizing baptism. He was using a rhetorical device to separate himself from it because some people thought they were a little better because they were baptized by Paul. Woo! I was baptized by Paul, the apostle. Who are you baptized by? Christmas. Oh, Christmas, right? I'm a little better than you because I was baptized by Paul. This is why people want to get baptized by the preacher, right? So you can say, well, now I'm, I'm good, right? And uh, so we want to attach a name to it. Paul's like, no, there's none of that in the body of Christ. And Paul speaks of this unity of thought. And what he says is, it's the gospel. It's the gospel message. And so he downplays his role. And what does he say? Christ sent me to preach the gospel. That's why I am here. The Corinthians, that's why I came to you, was to preach the gospel. We are to be united, Paul says, in the message of the gospel. United in what? 
thinking and united in thought, in mind and thought, and it's around the cross of Christ that we can be united. Listen, there is not much else that can unite us in the kingdom. We're divided by dress codes, we're divided by liturgy, we're even divided by Bible translations. Paul knew that. He says the one thing that we need to unite on is the gospel message. He's going to talk about the basics of the gospel in a few chapters. He says, my purpose was, though, to what? Give you the message. We need to unite around the message. We need to unite around the word. Why? Verse 17, he says this, not with wisdom and eloquence. You see, wisdom and the cross of Christ and human wisdom are antithetical to each other. All attempts to force the cross through humanity's wisdom destroys the gospel. Paul says you can't view the cross and at the same time be worldly wise. Because what happens is you empty the cross of its power. He's going to talk about the wisdom of the cross and the foolishness of the cross. You see, the Corinthians lived in the celebrity culture. The Romans were interested in their rhetorical skills and the persuasion in speeches. And so what Paul says is this, is that with wisdom and eloquence, oh man, did you hear that guy? He speaks really well. He has the best stories, the best sense of humor. Did you hear that guy? I I just love the way he speaks. Paul says what you're doing is you're aligning yourself to a person. And you've got to be very careful because our unity is around the gospel of Jesus, the message of the gospel, not the messenger. We are never to be loyal to the messenger, but we are to be loyal to the message. And Paul's going to tell us why in a few chapters. But there's a reason why is because it's the gospel that unites us. If anything rests on human cleverness, Uh, The cross no longer functions as that which cuts across all uh, distinctions of race, class, gender, and status. The cross cuts across all of those. And if we allow the world to come in, all of a sudden we are starting to become divided. We need to be united by the gospel message. You know what the word gospel means? It means good news. It's the good news of Jesus. God sent him to pay the penalty for our sin so that I don't have to endure eternity in hell because of what Jesus did for me. And we are to be informed by the good news, Paul says, and not by cable news. Ed Stetzer said this, don't be discipled by your cable news channel informed by your social media feed. We are to be discipled by Jesus informed by the word of God. And many times we, are, we have worldly wisdom. Our attitudes are not Christian. Our attitudes are not Christ-like. We are informed by the news that we consume and not by Jesus himself. And Paul says that's what leads to divisions. To treat the gospel of Christ as a vehicle for promoting self-esteem and self-fulfillment and self-assertion turns it upside down. So what does he say? I came to preach, not with wisdom and eloquence. Listen, if you're in a setting and the word of God is read, it doesn't matter how badly it's read. It doesn't matter who the person is reading it. It's the word that has the power to change your life. We're just unpacking it here in this moment, in this time. But it's the word of God that changes our lives. And Paul says we need to be united around the word of God. So skip over to chapter 3. We're going to walk through Corinthians. But he talks in chapter 3. He picks up on this theme. Paul has has this flow of thought when he writes. Like he'll be writing, and then he goes over here, and he goes over here, and then he comes back. And so in chapter 3, what he says is he picks back up on this theme of why divisions are not good for the body of Christ. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. 
Mere infants in Christ. I told you we'd be talking about babes again. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, and here he picks up on this theme, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? When you align yourselves, he says, there is food for these Christians to digest, but when they're involved in this divisiveness, they're not yet ready to digest it. When you're in turmoil in your life, you can't hardly eat, can you? Like, you eat and you get heartburn, you get an upset stomach, right? That's all Paul's saying spiritually, is you're in this turmoil, and there's this conflict going on in your life, and if I gave you solid food, you wouldn't be able to handle it because you've got some other things that are going on in your life. And so what Paul says is this, is that quarreling and jealousy hinder our spiritual growth. It keeps us stuck as babies. It's the immaturity of these adults who are acting like infants and they're still only eating baby food, but they're not regular for, uh, ready for grown-up food yet because there's quarreling and there's jealousy because they've aligned themselves with different personalities. Listen, we're not ready for deeper meat until we're able to live in and love the body of Christ. I don't care who you are. I've seen people through my years in ministry. They know the Bible inside and out, but you would not want to go out to eat with them because they are the most mean, miserable, divisive people. And Paul would say to them, you're still eating baby food because you kind of missed the point of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. You're quarreling and you're jealous and you're divisive. And I don't care how deep you think you are, you're not really deep. You go out to eat and you see adults in a very fancy restaurant and they pull out little jars of Gerber baby food and they start eating, right? You're thinking, what is wrong with them? Paul says, that's what happens in the church. That's what you're doing when you're quarreling and you're jealous of, of one another. And so he goes on and he says, here's why I don't want you to align with personalities. Here's the reason why factions are really futile. He says in verse 5 of chapter 3, What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Look what he says. Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Listen, I, 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 as, a, as a minister and uh, as uh, other fellow ministers, we need to go back and read that verse over and over and over. The one who plants and the one who waters isn't anything. Only the one who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And so Paul's using these metaphors of the church. He said you're a field and that you are a building. And he says the reason is this. The one who plants isn't really anything. The one who waters really isn't anything. And really, it's God who makes things grow. And so we attach ourselves to personalities instead of to Jesus. And the tragic results of these we see throughout history. Remember Jim Jones in Guyana? People attached themselves to a personality. And they followed him down into the jungles and they didn't come back. Or David Koresh. Remember him years ago in Waco, Texas? And 
the whole thing just it went it went haywire really quickly. But why? Because they attached themselves to personality. The Corinthians loved the cult of personality, and if we're honest, we kind of like it too. We got our guys, we got our ladies that we love, right? That we listen to, that we follow. But here's the truth. Everyone is necessary, but relatively unimportant. (laughs) We need to remember that as individual believers. Everyone is necessary. And he's going to talk about that in the body in chapter 12, 13, and 14. Everybody's necessary, but everybody's relatively unimportant. Because why? It's God who makes things grow. That's what he says. He says, what is Apollos? Who is Paul? They're nobodies. They're just doing their job. We've been called to one purpose. What's that purpose? The message of the gospel of Jesus. But the message only grows when God causes it to grow. I don't cause it to grow. You don't cause it to grow. God causes it to grow. So he gets the glory. He gets the honor. Not the lady or the man who's sowing the seed. And we build, we build temples to men. We build temples to women. And we follow them. And we, we just love them. And Paul says, they're nothing. They're nothing. They're relatively unimportant. Everybody wants a title in the kingdom. Everybody wants a title, director of this and minister of that and leader of this. And listen, there are no titles in the kingdom. We're just servants. Jesus has a title. He is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. That's his title. And so Paul uses this illustration of growing a seed. And Paul points out that it's God himself that causes the seed to grow. Gordon Fee says this. There's no question that Paul considers his Corinthian friends believers and that they are, in fact, acting otherwise. But Paul's whole concern is to get them to change, not to allow that such behavior is permissible since not all Christians are yet mature. Again, spiritual people are to walk in the Spirit. If they do otherwise, they are worldly and are called upon to desist. Remaining worldly is not one of the options. So Paul, in his way, he's saying, you're, you're attaching yourselves to personality. You're, caught, you're, 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 you're uh, making divisions. I want you to knock it off. <laughs> I'm not doubting your status as a believer. I'm not doubting your status as a Christian. But you're acting worldly at that point. The Christian celebrity phenomenon has great hazards. We create groupies who hang on every word or song of a radio or television preacher or singers who uh, have their messages and their songs, and we don't test their messages against the word of God. And so we just love the guy or the lady on TV and the song on the radio, and they could be singing or teaching things that are contrary to God's word that Paul tells us to be united in thought and mind. He said, they're nothing. You know that the guy on TV, he is... Nothing. That Paul, that's what Paul says. Now, he might think he's something. He's got the private jet and the big house and all the stuff that you don't have because you're sending your money to him. But Paul said he's nothing. He's, God's the one who makes it grow. And so we are all on the same level and it comes to the kingdom. And I'm so grateful for that. Nobody's better than one another. It's all level ground at the cross. And so he uses his metaphors of a building and a field, and that he says, you are the building, you are the field, we are in what? God's service. And so Paul says that regardless of what we have, in verse 10, it's the grace God has given me. It's always, it's by grace. It's, the, it's that unmerited favor of God. 
So Paul moves into this next section. He, he says we need to be careful how we build. We have to build up on the foundation already laid. What is the foundation that's already laid? Well, the prophets and the apostles, with the Jesus itself as the chief cornerstone. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You see, there's a danger in this cult of personality in the church is to think that some people have more value than others. To think that some people are more important than others. To think that some have a higher elevation than others. We have a tradition in our churches, if you're not familiar with our churches, do you know what you're supposed to call me? Jeff. I always tell people, just don't call me late for dinner. We don't go by titles. I'm not the Reverend Most High. That title's reserved for Christy to talk to me. Yeah. Your eminence, that's what the kids call me. But you just call me Jeff. Why? Because we are on the same playing field. We are God's field. We are God's building. And sometimes at this call of personality, a person's head just gets a little too big. And Paul wants to remind us, you're nothing. You're not the one that causes it to grow. And so he says, you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Does that include any of us? No. He said the foundation has been laid. In the first century... Farmers were keenly aware that their only contribution to the success of the harvest was to put the seed in the ground and then let the gods in the Roman Empire, the gods with a little g, or God in, in the uh, Yahweh God, cause the growth. And so Paul goes on in verse 10. He says, I, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. This wise builder is not quite the architect, but it's the guy who put the thing together and then he's kind of overseeing the whole project. And so he says someone else is building on it, but each one should be built with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. What's the foundation of the church? Jesus Christ, right? Who's the chief cornerstone? Jesus. Who said he was going to build his church? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the head of the body. His headquarters is in heaven. He is the king who rules from heaven. We are his loyal subjects here on planet earth. And so Paul says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Here's what he says. We're to build a high quality, enduring house of God on the foundation of Christ. That's what he tells us. We are to build this high quality foundation on Christ. Christian servants who labor in God's field should be very careful how they are building. Now look at the building materials that he says. Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now, Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 9 that my work in the Lord is you. So the Corinthians are Paul's work in the Lord. The foundation of the church is Jesus. The building is the people. So the stones are the individual believers as they're added to the spiritual building. The Bible calls it a holy temple. Here Paul says it's a field, it's a building, it's a, in, this, in this service. So what Paul is saying is 
that the hay, wood, stone, uh, gold, silver, those are people. We, we build people. The church is what? People. It's not a building. We love to build our buildings. We love to build our empires. But God does not call us to build buildings. He called us to build people. And the church is people. And so Paul is saying this, that those who are in the church are gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. And when, how are we going to find out what the worth of those uh, people is? Only on the last day. We don't know until the last day. Now listen, he says the fire is going to test each person's work. This doesn't have eternal value. In other words, you're not going to have this purging process or go through this fire to get into heaven. What he's saying is it's the person's work that's going to be tested, not the person. But you may get through by the skin of your teeth. Why? Paul was dealing with, with, with pride and boasting, which, which were the reasons behind the fragmentation of the congregations. And so one would say, well, I was baptized by Paul, and I, or one would say, I follow Apollos, and one, I follow Cephas. And here Paul says this, okay, uh, you, you're either gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, and the only way you're going to know that is on the last day. And so what that means is, whoever discipled you, whoever brought you into the kingdom, has no reason to boast today. We don't know whether you're gold, silver, hay, or straw until the last day. So Paul says, just chill out a little bit. Don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Because you don't know. It's going to be the day, what, the day in the future that is going to reveal. And so what you build, what you build needs to be lasting. So we are to build a high-quality, enduring house of God. There's that old saying, what you win them with is what you win them to. It's, it's been around for years, but you win uh, youth groups and, and kids things if, if, if you... If you uh, try to get them in with pizza parties and ice cream. Guess what they think the kingdom is about? Uh, pizza parties and ice cream. Uh, for adults, if you bring them in with entertainment, you bring them in with all kinds of things, what do they think the kingdom is about? They think the kingdom is about entertainment. And so Paul says it's not, it's not to be built with preaching style, wisdom or eloquence, verse 17. Uh, divisions keep people spiritually stagnated or these cults of personality. We are to build... An enduring, lasting house. So, if these people, if gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, our work is the people we bring into the kingdom, we want to make sure, what? That they're lasting, that they're deep, that they're, that they're spiritual uh, people who are, who are following Jesus, not following me, not following the latest fad, but they're following Jesus. A couple years ago, you may have heard of Willow Creek Community Church. It's a huge church up outside of Chicago. And years ago, they started, they kind of kicked off this uh, thing where uh, they had a, a service that would appeal to people. So they did a lot of music, a lot of drama, a lot of skits, and those kinds of things. And so a few years ago, they did a study of all their people. It was called the Reveal Study. And here's what it revealed. It revealed that they were able to attract a crowd, but were not so good at making disciples. So for years, they were able to bring lots of people in, but the people weren't growing. They weren't going very deep. They were staying on milk and not solid food. And so this reveal study revealed to them that, you know what? We weren't building gold, silver, and precious stone. We were actually building straw, wood, and hay. 
That's because the, the crowd comes in, but they're not, they're not hanging on. They're not growing deeper. And so a, a blogger had analyzed uh, this, and he said, I, here's some cultural shifts that have happened in the church that may have contributed to them not being able to build something that was enduring and lasting. And the first shift was this, the move from a word-centered church to a worship and or fellowship-centered church. They got away from the supremacy and the primacy of God's word and were more focused on the entertainment. We're more focused on, hey, come and meet some great friends. Those, are, those things are fine, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But they move from what? A word-centered to a worship-centered. The, the music and the, the, the drama and all that was elevated and the word was minimized. The second thing was, it was a move from word-based exposition from the pulpit to a topical attempt to engage attention. And so you saw for years uh, billboards advertising things. And, and so we moved from just walking through God's word to, to the topics that we thought people would be interested in. Usually uh, sex, parenting, relationships, and money were like the hot topics, right, that everybody wants to know about. So we can, what, bring people in, but we're not taking them deep. And the third thing was to move away from a peer and mentor-based discipleship as part of the church community DNA. In other words, people were not taught how to pick up the spoon and start feeding themselves. And so we've created sermon junkies, (laughs) I got the high today. It's Monday morning. What do I do? The high wore off. I need to find my favorite guy on the radio, my favorite lady on the radio, right? To get my next high. And instead, we've not taught people to read the word and feed yourself on the word. It's very weird to see a mother cutting up her teenager's steak and feeding it to him at the Outback Steakhouse. It's just really weird. But we are in danger of doing that as believers if we don't feed ourselves. I hear people say, I'm looking for a church to meet my needs. If you're looking for your church to meet your needs, you have the wrong impression of what church is. Church is not to meet your needs. It's for you to meet the needs of others. You're never going to find a church to meet your needs because our needs change. Chris and I always have a joke. I never tell her what my preferences change until she gets the thing for me and I don't like it anymore. So go to the store. Hey, honey, I got you this. I don't really like those anymore. She's like, would you please tell me the next time you change your mind so I don't buy this at the store? I'm like, yeah, just don't think about it. Right? So I go to to meet my needs. And Paul's going to get into this later on in Corinthians. We're not here to have our needs met. We are here to meet one another's needs. And ultimately, we're here to bless the Lord. And he will then meet our needs. It's not habit your way. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders won't upset us. That's not what church is, not at all. And so we have this thing in life where we are always looking for the thing. We've created a consumer culture in the church, and we are not to be consumers, we are to be contributors. And how are we contributors? Well, first we need to, we need to agree on the word, we center on the word, and everything else is just the dressing and the dress up for the word. That's what Paul was talking about in chapter 1. Because there's a seriousness with how we treat the church. I heard of a restaurant. I went there once. I had great food. The servers were unfriendly. One time I walked in and they ignored me. I just sat down at the table. I had to get their attention to take my order. And then they didn't serve the meal just like I wanted it. The cooks in the back were always fighting because one thought one was more important than the other. 
And when the country music started playing, I was out of there. I thought I was going to lose it. Now, would you want to go to that restaurant that I just described? No way. But we do the same with the church. We talk about the church like it's some nebulous, amorphous thing, but we are talking about the bride of Christ. Listen, Paul made no bones about it. The Corinthians have problems. That's why he's writing 1 Corinthians, to address their problems. Do individuals in the church cause problems? Absolutely. But I have to be very careful how I talk about the bride of Christ. The church is who Jesus came and died for and resurrected and sent Pentecost on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, to to start the church. It's Jesus' bride. Well, how do we know that? Because Paul goes on. He says in verse 16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? He's not talking about you individually. He's going to do that later on in chapter 6. He says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. When we destroy the church, here's what Paul says, we destroy ourselves. Have people in the church done some stupid things through the years? Yes. Do you know how I know that? Because I've done some stupid things, and I'm a part of the church. You've done some stupid things, and you're a part of the church as well. Paul said in Chapter 1, we're still blameless, remember? In spite of our fumbles, we are still blameless in Christ. And there is a trend where people uh, are are all excited, and I see them on uh, uh, Twitter, and I see them on Facebook. They are just trashing the church. You need to be very careful. Why? Paul just said that. You, the temple is sacred, and you you together are the temple. Here he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the church the temple of the living God. If you have a problem with someone in the church, you go talk to them, Matthew 18. You talk to them. But you don't go out and say the church is blah, 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 whatever, right? Because Paul says we have to be very, very careful. Here, people are trying to tear down the structure. The very thing that Jesus came to build his church, now we have folks in Corinth trying to tear it down through their quarreling and through their jealousy and through their divisions and through the diversity of all the teaching that they have. And what God says is, Paul says, you got to be very careful because God's going to destroy you. Listen, God takes his church very seriously. Whether we do or not, he does. It's the bride of Christ. It's the kingdom of God on earth. And he warns about the consequences of promoting this fragmentation of these divisions. Jerry Vine said this, Many people in America today are are, are building crowds but are not willing to pay the price to build a church. It's easy to attract crowds. In fact, a couple years ago, a guy wrote a book. He started a church. It drew a huge crowd, and it drew lots of people, and they had music, and they had inspirational readings. But you know what the difference was? The church didn't talk about God one bit. It was an atheist church. It was a group of people that drew a crowd. You can draw a crowd for anything. FedEx Field will draw a crowd. Although the crowd's thinning out a little bit. Have you noticed that? (laughs) And it thins out a lot earlier. Like the the halftime, half the crowd's gone. But it's easy to draw a crowd. But Jesus is not interested in drawing a crowd. He wants to draw followers. He wants to draw disciples. 
And so Paul then brings it back home. He says, don't deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise, by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Why was Paul saying that? He was saying that because the Corinthians were living with the wisdom of the Roman Empire and the Greek philosophers that they were following. They were not living with the wisdom of God's word. And if we're not careful, we do the same thing. Our views of the world and how we view one another and how we live in this world are more often than not, not shaped by God's word, but they're shaped by our friends. They're shaped by the things we read, the things that we listen to besides God's word. And Paul says this, we think we are so wise, but you need to become a fool. A fool in the world's perspective. A fool in the way that the world says, why do you think that? You see, because it's because God's word says, and this is, the, this is the way that it is. The Corinthians were taught that the, that the teachers, that the students belonged to the teachers. That was a cultural concept. And all throughout this, this section, Paul was saying, you need, to be, you need to be countercultural. You need to go against the grain of culture. Ephesians 4, chapter 11 says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles. Here's what the things that Paul gave. Apostles, the prophets, building the foundation. Evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip God's people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up. These are the gifts. And Paul said, you're not lacking anything. Listen, no one comes to Christ who does not surrender his entire self in allegiance to their new master. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one who we follow. And if we have to separate, am I being informed by the world or am I being informed by the word? Promoting unity and avoiding divisiveness, focusing on Christ rather than exalting human leaders. And so he, he wraps this up and he says in verse 21, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. No more. Don't be saying, you need to listen to this guy. I just heard this guy on the radio. Man, you need to listen. How about, you need to listen to Jesus. <laughs> I have this Savior that loves me and came to die for me. I want you to listen to him. Paul says, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. You have it all. Why do you think you need to align yourself with somebody who's relatively unimportant? Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, everything is yours. You don't have to fragment yourself. You don't, have to, you don't have to be divisive. You don't have to follow because everything is yours already in Jesus. You are of Christ in verse 23 and Christ is of God. Only Christ demands our loyalty. We are to love one another. We're to love our leaders. We're to love our fellow members in the body of Christ. But only Christ demands our loyalty. And if you have a teacher or a leader or someone in the body of Christ who's demanding your loyalty, you need to run. We are to be loyal to Jesus, not loyal to a person. We are to love each other, right? We're, we're, to, we're to sacrifice for each other. We're to do all those things. But to the extent that we belong to Christ, we're free from all of that because I'm loyal to Jesus. 
And so Paul, talking to the Corinthians, doesn't he hit, like, this is where we are in our world today. We're, we're divided, we follow this person and that person, and that seeps into the church, and then all of a sudden we start to have our favorites and our people that we like, and our people that we want to hear, and we want to see, and we want to follow, and Paul says, enough of that. Just knock it off. This is the church. This isn't the world. You need to be different. The Pro Bowl is the all-star game of the NFL. Next year, I think it's the week before the Super Bowl. It matches the top players in the AFC against those in the NFC. And for years, the game has suffered from lack of interest due to perceived low quality of the game. And commentators and uh, observers have, uh, have expressed their disfavor with its current state. But here's what the biggest concern is. You know what the biggest concern of the Pro Bowl is? The Associated Press wrote that the players in one, it looked like the players in the game were hitting each other as though they were having a pillow fight. When you go to a football game, you want to see some knocking down, drag them out, tackles, and people flying in the air. You don't want to see people hitting each other with pillows. That's why you watch NASCAR. You watch NASCAR for the wrecks. You don't watch it for hours going around. You're just waiting for the wreck. That's what makes it exciting. And so the Pro Bowl suffers because they're not playing to their full potential. Why are they not playing to their full potential? Because even though they're from the AFC or the NFC, that's not their home team. Nobody's going to get injured playing in a Pro Bowl that is the all-star game because their loyalty is to their home team. I'm not going to come at you with everything that I have because you're not paying my salary and I'm not loyal to you. We're going to make it look like we're rough and tumble, but we're really not. And so the fear of injury is the number one reason that it doesn't have the appeal that a regular game does. Because in regular games, people are playing for their home team and they want their home team to win. And Paul says, if we're not careful, the church can become like the Pro Bowl. We come in and we put our all-star jerseys on and we say, I'm for team so-and-so. But underneath, we still have our external loyalties. We're loyal to something out there in the world. We're loyal to some philosophy. We're loyal to something that we heard on the news. We're loyal to something that we heard somewhere. And, and Paul is saying, because the divisions are because we're not really on the team. We're just, we're just faking it. And he says, you are wise by the world standards, but you're still worldly. Listen, I know these are divisive times. They just are. They were divisive in Paul's day in Corinth because he's writing about divisions. There's nothing new about human nature. But what is new is we have to be very careful that when we come into the church, that we are not just playing on the all-star team, but that it's really the team that we're on. Listen, God's word needs to cut through every culture, every philosophy, everything. If God's word doesn't grate you somehow, you're reading it wrong. If God's word doesn't challenge our beliefs about the world, our beliefs about politics, our beliefs about the state of things, our, whatever it is, if God's word doesn't challenge all of us, if it's just merely confirming what we already believe, we're reading it wrong. Because God's word has to challenge all of us for everything every day. None of us has it. And Paul says in the church, we cannot be just the all-star team. It's the home team. Tim Keller said this. 
Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. It's the church in the first century was a scandal because it was Jews and Gentiles who came together to form one new humanity, Paul writes in Ephesians. And the church today is still a scandal from the world's perspective. When people from different backgrounds, from different social statuses, from different ethnicities, from different even political places can come together and can worship and and leave those loyalties out, but be really a part of the church of Jesus. Church should be a place where people who have no other natural reason for associating with, with each other come together in love. What natural reason does the church have to get together? None. But the spiritual reason is love. Jesus said in John chapter 17 that we opened up with, I pray, what? That you will be united by your love for one another. That's part of being the, on the home team. We just love each other. We leave our loyalties and those things. Listen, we can discuss things and we can work through things and we can wrestle things. But if those things start to become a hindrance, we are starting to divide the body of Christ. We're using worldly wisdom in the world's eyes and causing divisions. And Paul says, I'd rather you be a fool from the world's perspective. I'd rather you be silly from the world's perspective and get my view on this. Listen, we're on the same team in the body of Christ. We just are. Quarreling, Jealousy, backbiting has no place in the kingdom of God. We are just destroying the church that Jesus came and lived and died for. Our loyalty is to Jesus. He's the one who demands our loyalties. We treat each other as individuals, not as members of larger groups. We see each other as people made in God's image. We see each other as frail, broken individuals who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who by the grace of God, we are what we are. And we love one another based on the love that we have for Jesus. Paul starts in Corinthians with the divisions because it probably was foremost on his mind that the church is never going to move ahead as long as it's divided. As long as our loyalties and our allegiances are to anyone but Jesus, it's never going to move ahead. Where's your loyalty today? Is your loyalty to Jesus? Is your loyalty to him? Are, 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 you, just, are you just tolerating people in the body of Christ? Like, whew, I can't wait to get home and get away from those people. No. And I'm not going back for anything. I'm just going to be there, so I don't... Right? That's, we're missing what it means to be part of the body. We are to love one another. We are to have be united in Jesus. Anything else is an affront to the kingdom of God. We're going to pray, and I'm just going to uh, ask you, challenge you, like Paul did, appeal to you. Let there be no divisions among you, right? Let there be no cause for me 
to be divisive with someone else. May we make the message of the gospel and the cross of Jesus the supreme thing. May we make the word the center of all that we do in our lives and in our relationships with one another. The word is only good news when we see it as good news and not divisive news. And so Jesus is calling us to love one another. Listen, you're in a group of folks that loves each other. You're in a group of folks that uh, we get under each other's skin sometimes. We just do. That's just a human experience. But we love, we forgive. We're united by Jesus. We're united by the gospel. So we come with all of our differences. We come from all of our backgrounds. We come with all of the things that make us who we are. And we come in and we say, you know what? I'm part of this kingdom. I'm part of this temple. I'm part of this body. And, and regardless, I just love because of Jesus. I love you because of Jesus. There's no reason for us to be together besides loving one another. And Jesus, that's the reason. We have different viewpoints on probably everything there is in life. There's not one thing. If I would ask you what's your favorite pizza restaurant, we're going to get all kinds of answers. We, can't even, we don't agree on much. But we don't have to. That's why we're unique. That's why we're individuals. But in the kingdom of God, we agree on what? Jesus. It's him who unites us. Would you please stand and we're going to pray. Father, it always starts with us. May we not be the ones who are causing division by our allegiances to personalities, by our allegiance to preferences, by the promotion of agendas. God, may we be united on the gospel of of Jesus, on the cross of Jesus. God, there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of smart people who are divisive because they're smart from the world's perspective. So, Father, we, would we be foolish in our thinking of the world, but wise in your word, wise in how you view life. So, Father, over these next few moments, it's just a time for us once again to recommit and reconfirm our allegiance to Jesus and to love each other. Love each other. Because it shows to the world that you came when your church is united. In Jesus' name we pray.